Well, if you would just pray with me tonight as we begin our time. Father, we do thank you for tonight. We thank you the opportunity to be together once again as a family, as we've heard, as we've all reflected upon the joy that that is, the great comfort it is, the the camaraderie that we have, even with those who are Christians who aren't part of this family, when we have visitors and, and those uh, of like faith. We we just have a unity that, that is unlike anything the world has to offer. And so we're grateful for that. We're grateful for our commonality in Jesus Christ and that we can come together and study the Word of God together. So we ask you to attend to our time, use it upon our hearts, encourage us, allow us to be solidified in our faith tonight as we understand uh, uh, more about you and your very character and nature. To your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's take our Bibles tonight and open them to the book of Malachi. Malachi, we are continuing our study of being authentic as God requires. And tonight we want to look at the trusting and unchanging God. Trusting and unchanging God. I want to focus our attention tonight on verses uh, or the beginning in chapter 2, verse 17, and then proceeding all the way to chapter 3 and verse 12, a rather uh, large section, but, but this is how sometimes narrative works. Uh, you work through a larger section and kind of complete an entire idea as you're going through those verses. So I want to read those for us tonight, and then we'll begin to work our way through them. Malachi, of course, prophesying to Israel, telling them what God was saying, said, You have wearied the Lord with your words, and yet you say, How have we wearied him? In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, Where is the God of justice? Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, and against the adulterers, and against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. 
Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Years ago, my family, when they were much younger and we were able to spend a significant amount of time with my brother's family, my sister-in-law said to one of my nephews who was complaining about life at his ripe age of five years old, said to him, life is hard. Life is hard. What she was trying to do was simply trying to help him understand that sometimes life can be harsh. Sometimes it can be harsh. And sometimes our expectations are so far from being what they ought to be that we can begin to believe that God has somehow no longer involved in it. In fact, life can get to the place, even for us as Christians, as we were singing John Newton's song, thinking about those words, he being a Christian and yet life going on so wrongly, praying to God that he would take away those struggles and those troubles. And as Christians, we can act in ungodly ways and begin to deny even the providence of God in the affairs of life. Well, that seems to be the mindset of the Jews in Malachi's day. According to their way of thinking, the nation was long past the day that God had promised for there to come prosperity for their nation. They knew the preaching that had come from previous prophets like Haggai and Zechariah. They they heard hundreds of years before through those voices that they had promised God's intervention in their troubles. Things would turn around, but up to the point where we are here in Malachi's prophecy, none of those dramatic reversals through Haggai and through Zechariah had happened. They were still just struggling as a nation among the surrounding enemies. And of course, everyone wanted the benefits. Everyone wanted what God had promised. Everyone wanted the blessing that God had promised He would bring. But no one really wanted to take personal responsibility for those things. No one actually wanted to make the commitments that God required of them. They had deliberately neglected the most important matter, and that would be living holy and separate lives. And yet, all along, they believed that if they just simply continued to carry out the outward religious acts and ceremonial duties that were required of them as Jews, then they would somehow earn God's favor. Why wasn't God doing what He promised if we are doing all that God has required of us. But all of that was simply wearing to the Lord, as verse 17 says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. 
And now in Malachi's prophecy, God is uncovering the reality of their hearts and showing that their complaints had turned not simply to complaints, but direct attacks against God himself. And that's the entire point, really, of this message. In fact, I think it really hones in, if you will, in chapter 3 and verse 6. The driving point of it all is simply that. I, the Lord, do not change. I, the Lord, do not change. And I was thinking about that. What a glorious truth that is for our souls. That we worship, that we have an unchanging God. That doctrine, the doctrine of the immutability of God, or the unchangeableness, that's what immutability means, the unchangeableness of our living God is both a frightening and a comforting doctrine. It's frightening, for those who do not have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's frightening for them. Why? Because that means that he will not overlook sin and he will not overlook the penalty for sin. In fact, it is impossible for God to overlook that. He does not change. He will judge. He must judge. He does not change. And yet for the Christian, it's comforting For you and I who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ by faith in Him, it's comforting because that means that He has already judged our sin. He has carried out the penalty for our sin on His own Son, and therefore you are secure. Because God does not change, you will not be judged again because God is, in fact, immutable. Praise God for His immutability. We live in a day and age where everything seems to be changing at breakneck speeds. We can't tell from one day to the next what's going to remain the same. And yet we can count on God. We can count on His nature. We can count on His attributes. We can count on His qualities in every kind of way. We can count on His being. We can count on His personhood. He is completely and totally fixed. Will not change. In fact, just listen for a moment at how the Bible declares that very fact. The unchangeableness of God. Numbers 23 verse 19 says this, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? The simple fact that God is who he says he is. God will do exactly what he says he will do, because God cannot change. 1 Samuel 15, verse 29, also the glory of Israel, that's just a a title, if you will, an Old Testament title for God himself, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. For he is not a man that he should change his mind. Or Psalm 102, verse 25 and 26. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. 
And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be changed. Implication, but God will not. God is the one who changes things, but God does not change. Hebrews 13 verse 8 brings this home to our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ, it says, is the same yesterday and today and forever. The immutability of God is the immutability of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. James 1 verse 17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And of course, the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ begins and ends in a similar way. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So from the beginning to the end of Scripture, the Bible declares God to be immutable, completely fixed and unchanging. But we cannot be confused because that does not mean that God is immobile. Immobile. You say, what do you mean? I mean that God is not restricted by some kind of blind force that is greater than He is. God's unchangeableness has nothing to do with something outside of God that has restricted God in His being, so therefore He cannot change. Something that He wishes wasn't there so that He could do more to us or more with us. That is not why God is immutable, not because He's immobile. No, God can change His actions. God can change His actions. But what he cannot and will not change is his actions being the outflow of his very nature. God's actions are always the outflow of his very nature, and that is what makes immutability so comforting. That God always acts according to his very nature. God always does according to who he is, and he never changes. And this is on the heart of Malachi as he speaks to the people of Israel. As God is speaking by way and by means of Malachi to the people of Israel. And so here in Malachi's prophecy, beginning in verse 17, all the way down through verse 12 of chapter 3, there are two of God's immutable qualities on display. Two of God's immutable qualities. And I I want to focus on them tonight. One is that God is just. God is just. We'll see that in chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 6. The second is that God is faithful. God is just and God is faithful. Chapter 3, verse 7 through chapter 12. These two immutable Qualities are on display in these verses. Let's begin to look at them then together. First, God is just. Malachi declares in verse 17, You have wearied the Lord with your words. You have wearied the Lord with your words. What words? Well, the words that you're saying, everyone who does evil in the sight of God, uh, in the sight of the Lord, and he, he delights in them. Or, 
But really, where is the justice of God? Where is the God of justice? You've worried God with that because in saying that, you're implying that God is a changeable God, that He is capricious in His actions, that He doesn't do what He says. You're impugning the very nature and character of God, and that wearies the Lord. Where is the justice of God, you're asking? The answer is given to us in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3. In fact, it is stated most clearly in verse 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So in a moment of directness, and I would even add with a hint of sarcasm behind it. Malachi wants Israel to know that their constant complaint about God's very character of partiality toward the wicked has wearied the patience of God. You have wearied God. And at first, like all sinners confronted with the reality of their sin, with the clarity of it, they tried to deny it. They say, how have we wearied him? Oh, what do you mean? Us? We've wearied him? Uh, Who's doing the wearying here? The implication is God's wearying us. How have we wearied him? Malachi states it clearly. States clearly what they've been doing. You have been saying... Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. And really what you're saying is, where is the God of justice? In other words, our God, who claims to be a God of justice, somehow isn't around. He has disappeared. He isn't involved in the circumstances of our life. Until like a perpetrator caught in the act of a crime, they in essence are saying, yeah, I know about them, I know about the wicked, but what about me? I'm not, I'm not the wicked one here. I know they are guilty, but surely I'm not guilty. This is a high crime before God. To say that God is somehow not holding the wicked accountable? To imply by your very words or by your very life that God has somehow changed, that God is no longer the holy God, the just God that He has professed to be in all of Scripture, that's tantamount to accusing God of lying. Accusing God that He is not a truth teller. To justify the wicked of their wickedness or in their wickedness, according to Proverbs 17.15, was an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 17, verse 15, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. God certainly didn't regard the wicked as good. He, he certainly hasn't taken pleasure in the wicked 
He hasn't found joy in them. What God delights in is seeing his law kept. What God delights in, what he loves, is what Hosea has declared in Hosea 6 and verse 6. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than in burnt offering. I desire that you serve me from a pure heart rather than these outward rituals and activities that you keep doing. God delights in what Micah said in Micah 6 and verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So in a word, Malachi is simply saying, listen, what God delights in, God delights in truth. But you, Israel, you have accused Him And you have accused him out of your own warped perspective of the truth because of your warped perspective on life that was born out of your own disobedience. That's the problem. You're saying, God, you must love the wicked more than us. You should have destroyed them by now. But look, but look, they seem to be prospering all the more. You shouldn't have them around. Certainly everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Where, where is the God of justice? You see, what irritated Israel was that God seemed to be treating them with less favor than He treated others. And so they asked, where is the God of justice? Of course, that raises in our minds another question, doesn't it? According to what standard of justice? Where is the God of justice? According to what standard of justice? Justice is a big word being thrown around in many circles today. We hear of it a lot. We hear of it a lot. And each and every time and under every adjective that's being attached to it in which it is being modified, we have to ask the same question. According to what standard of justice? Why do we have to ask that? Because as Christians, as those who live in the world that is talking about justice at every turn in all kinds of different ways, we have to ask the question as God's people. We follow what God has declared in His Word. We we don't follow the definitions that the world makes. We follow the definitions that God gives. We follow what God has said is in His Word. And the norm in all of Scripture for justice is nothing less than the very character of God Himself. That is the definition of justice. Just look at the words of Jesus Christ. Turn for a moment over to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, people were wondering about Jesus Christ and continually asking Him these kinds of questions. Chapter 13, there is this occasion where some have reported that Pilate had mingled blood with the sacrifices that he had committed heinous sacrilege against God. 
And he answers and says to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the Galileans because they suffered this fate? See, they're asking the same questions. They're saying, well, God isn't just. I mean, look what happened to these people. These people didn't do anything. I mean, they weren't bad. And, 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 and why did that happen to them? And Jesus comes along and says, do you think they're worse than those people? Do you think you're worse than them? I tell you, no, verse 3. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then notice what he says. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? Somehow there was an incident in which this tower had been built and through some means by which it was either faulty in some kind of way, these 18 people who were standing around the tower, one day the tower fell and snuffed them out. Oh, the outrage of injustice. How these innocent people should face such a fate of dying under this heinous thing. I mean, they, they didn't do anything. They were good people. Where's God in all of that? How could a good God allow them to die in that way? Jesus says to them, Do you suppose that you're any better than them? That all the men who live in Jerusalem are better than them? That these people were worse culprits than you because you didn't die in the same way? That somehow maybe God had a curse upon them? That's why the tower fell upon them. And so therefore, they were getting their just desserts. But you're, you're, you're a little better than that, so you, don't, you weren't there at the time? Jesus, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You see, this is the God of justice. To have any other kind of justice is not true justice at all. To have any kind of justice that does not flow from the character and nature of God Himself, and He's the one who defines justice, is not true justice at all. And so here in our text, Malachi gives an answer. He gives an answer to their silly question about the immutability of God, even though they don't realize they're asking about that, and don't realize they're intimating that God is not a God who is always the same, but it's not the answer they are expecting. Malachi says God is just. God is just, and His justice would be seen in five ways. Five ways. His justice will be seen by His preparation for justice by His forerunner. Chapter 3, Verse 1a, behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Of course, we understand who that is. John the Baptist, we saw that this morning. Secondly, his justice would be seen by his coming. The second part of verse 3 and verse 2, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears for he is like the refiner's fire and like the fuller's soap. So that's the third way that justice will be seen, the refining work of God the refining work of God. He will sit as a smelter, verse 3, and purify 
purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. God is just. God's justice will be seen in the messenger who came before. It will be seen in the Messiah coming. It will be seen in the refining work of God. And it will be seen, fourthly, in the judgment of God. Verse 5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. God's justice will also be seen in his patience. In his patience. Verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O Jacob, are not consumed. You see the implication? The implication is you're not consumed, not because you have done well, but simply because I do not change. You should have been consumed long ago. That's the idea. You you are as guilty as the rest. You're no better than those who the Tower of Siloam fell on. You're no better than the Galileans who were killed in that kind of way. You're no better than any of them. You think you are, but you're no better than them. And the only reason you are still standing today is simply because I am the Lord who do not change. In other words, those who are anxious to see God and to have Him carry out His justice, they will get their chance. They will get their chance. Justice is coming. But it will not be the meeting out of some kind of utopia that will take care of all of life's troubles. That's what the world thinks. It will just be a a panacea. It will be a utopia in which life will be good if we just take care of all the things. And if we just do the right thing, then everything will get better. No, He isn't coming with that kind of human cure-all. No, it will be a terrifying day of tragic consequences for all who are not prepared. God would send His messenger. Praise God that He did. John the Baptist came. Jesus clearly said that John was the Elijah-like prophet to come. And John called on the people to repent. Then the Lord would come. Then the Lord would come. So when you read the messenger here in verse 1, there's two different messengers. One is John the Baptist. The second messenger is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the Lord, when whom you seek, will suddenly come to His temple. He is the messenger of the covenant, the new covenant which is in His blood, in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who, who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? In other words, the Lord is coming. The God of justice that men claim to seek is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the messenger of the covenant. He is the owner of the temple. It is His. He will suddenly come. Suddenly come. By the way, suddenly means unexpectedly. Unexpectedly. The word suddenly is used 25 times in the Old Testament. This original word. 
And all but one time, in all the places it's used, all but one time, it's always connected with judgment. Always. So for the unprepared, for the unrepentant, His coming will be, just like Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, it will come like a thief in the night. Unexpectedly. To those who do not repent, that day will not be a day of restoration. It will be a nightmare day. It will be a living nightmare. In fact, over in chapter 4, verse 5, it is called the great and terrible day of the Lord. The great and terrible day of the Lord. We know that to be the tribulation period. When Christ comes to judge, who then could stand in that day? Verse 2 says. Who can endure that day? Who can stand when He appears? The obvious answer is into that rhetorical question is nobody. Nobody in and of themselves, nobody who isn't enveloped in the very righteousness of God could withstand the very holiness of God as God is judging So only those who are clad with the armor of God, if you will, those who cling cling to Jesus Christ, those with clean hands and pure hearts, as Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4 says. And so God is using this metaphor. he's, He's wanting them to understand. He's wanting them to realize the very depth of their very sinfulness. And the metaphor continues. It will be a cleansing. It will be a cleansing like fire and like soap. He is like a refiner's fire, it says in verse 2, like fuller's soap. This is what fire does. The hottest of fires separates the slag from raw metal ore. They bring the ore into a smelter. They pour it into these big vats and heat those vats up with the hottest of temperatures so that those that rock begins to melt and all of the impurities from the rock begin to come to the top and they begin to take it off. It's called slag. They drag the slag off and keep burning it until all of the impurities are out. The hottest of fires does that. Soap is used to separate the dirt from that which is soiled. That's what God's cleansing will do for His people. The only ones who need to fear are those who are the dirt and the slag. Those are the only ones who need to fear. In other words, only the wicked need to be fearful of that day. Why? Because the fire will test the work. It will test the human deeds done. For you and I, It only reveals what was done for Christ. It truly burns up the wood, hay, and stubble. What was revealed in our heart, which was truly done from a pure heart for Christ. But it's not the judgment of God in the sense that we will be judged with the fires of hell. right? For the unbeliever, that's what it does. It reveals the wickedness of their heart. The full fury of the wickedness and rejection of God in the heart. God says to Malachi, in that day, God will purify, notice, the sons of Levi, verse 3. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. The sons of Levi, that was the 
the priesthood. The, the sons of Levi carried out more than, than the priesthood. In other words, only the priests were from the line of Aaron, which was all of the tribe of Levi. And all of the Levites did some kind of temple service. And you remember the problem in Malachi is that those who are leading the people are not authentic in their leading of the people. And so as the priest goes, so goes the people. So God says, I will judge the house. The leaders of the people are going to be judged. Let's make no mistake, beloved. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. God desires genuine worship. And when He comes... That is the kind of worship that will be in every place. It will be genuine worship. And yet here, since the people do not fear God, God would judge. They professed to fear God. They professed to be doing what God wanted. And yet by their very lives, they showed themselves to be inauthentic. They were professors of believing in God, and yet they were not. You say, how so? Well, look at what they were practicing. They were practicing sorcery. Sorcery was clearly forbidden in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 22, verse 18 clearly says that. Leviticus 20, verse 27 says it. Deuteronomy 18, verse 14. All of those say that sorcery was to be not done in any place. Any kind of adultery was out of bounds for God's people. It didn't matter whether it was physical adultery or spiritual adultery. It was not to be done. It was an abomination to the, to the Lord. And of course, any kind of perjury, any kind of swearing falsely, any kind of lying. So they were exploiting the vulnerable. They were taking advantage of those even closest to them, their own wives. They were withholding wages from the poor. They were oppressing the unprotected. They were doing damage to the widows and to the orphans and to the aliens that were among them. All of these sins. All offending God Himself. And all of them earned His judgment. I will draw near to you for judgment, he says, and I will be a swift witness. There was no fear of God in their eyes, and it showed in how they lived. They had failed to believe that God was who he said he was. They had failed to believe. They refused, in fact, to believe because they were living in such a way that showed their refusal. They were saying God was a changeable God. Yet all the time, the very character and nature of God had not been vacillating at all. In fact, they owed their very existence to God's patience and His faithfulness in keeping His promise. That's what verse 6 is pointing out. For I, the Lord, do not change. You are implying that I have changed and that I do change. And I'm here to tell you I do not change. And that is the only reason you have not been consumed already. So God is just. Justice is coming in its fullest sense. 
So that's the first character of God's immutability. God's justice is coming. God will not change. It will come whether we think it's coming or not, whether we want to admit that it's coming or not, whether we believe that it's coming or not. God's judgment is coming. God does not change. Secondly, Malachi points out that God is also faithful. God is also faithful. Notice in verses 7 through 12, from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes, have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed. For you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Continually amazes me how patient God is. And yet the only reason that he is his patient is because God is immutable. He is patient with even the most heinous of sinners He says to Israel, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. That's a pretty, pretty big indictment. Ever since the early days, ever since I made the first covenant, you have been walking astray. You have been disobedient your entire life or your entire relationship you have disobeyed. But if you will just turn, oh, the grace of God. You've been disobedient as long as I have ever known you, but if you will repent, if you will return to me, I will return to you. You ever want a definition of grace? That's it. That's a definition of the grace of God. We must know that the Bible comes to us from a divine source. Why? Because no man would ever write that. No human being would ever come up with that reality. No human being would ever say, listen, you've been disobedient to me your whole life, but if you would just return to me, I would pour on everything for you. No, that's not what we say in humanity. We say, listen, you've been disobedient to me your whole life. Now get out of my face. I never want to see you again. The heart of man produces what we see today. The heart of man produces reparative justice. That's what the heart of man produces. Reparative justice. A justice that needs and wants others to go down so it can go up. A justice that seeks from others so that it will not have to forgive others. A justice that is wicked and is as evil 
as the evils perpetuated against it. That's what the world wants. That's the justice of the world, but that is not how God works. God says, return to me and I will return to you. I don't hear anyone today in the big evangelical church community, at least, not in a greatest sense, being accepted in any kind of way and preaching a message that says, listen, it doesn't matter how you're treated. You're to treat others with kindness. You're to treat others with the heart of God. You're to treat others with forgiveness, no matter how you've ever been treated. We're not hearing that today. We're hearing, listen, you get your pound of flesh first because that is justice. That's not how God works. God says, listen, instead of heading into sin, you are urged to turn around and turn in faith to God for true justice. What God says. But here's the reality of of life. Here's the reality of the wickedness of man's heart because sin is so wicked. Sin is so deceptive. Sin is so hard. Sin is so hardening. Israel fails to even acknowledge their own problem. They say, how shall we return? You say we should return. You say that we're the bad people. How should we return? I mean, there's not, the implication here is there's nothing for us to return from. In other words, we're not the problem. We're not the problem. It's a complete denial of guilt. So God has no other recourse than to pull back the veil even more and point out a little bit more about their sinfulness. He says, look, Israel, you are robbing me. Notice verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. How? How? By not offering to me what you ought. In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse because you are robbing me. The whole nation of you. you. Notice that? Nobody's left out. Not one person is left out. This is a universal indictment. It's the whole nation. They had neglected to worship God rightly in their giving. Listen, let's make no mistake about it. God is worshipped in giving. It isn't just the singing of music whereby we worship God. It isn't just praying to God whereby we worship God or, or reading the Bible and these things. We worship God in our giving. Because in our giving, we are caring for others. We are trusting God. We are, we are acknowledging the very nature and character of God Himself. And when we do not worship God as God requires of us, then we are neglecting the care of God's people, which in essence was showing a willingness to cheat God out of what is rightfully His. By the way, the word rob here is, is more stunning by, by its essence because it, it really means to defraud or to cheat. You're defrauding me or you're cheating me. And by the way, it's not to cheat secretly. It's to cheat with 
with blatancy. It is to take by force. It's as if the offering plate goes by and you take money out of it. That's the idea. Listen, Israel, you're not giving what you ought. It's as if you're stealing from me. It's as if when you see it go by, you take it and you take it by force. They were defrauding God in tithes and offerings, it says. Now let me just say a few things about tithes so that we're not confused. Right? Tithing in the Old Testament was generally considered to be a tenth of what you earned. That's what Abraham gave to Melchizedek. And by the way, that was before the law of Moses was codified to include tithing. That was the amount. From those tithes, from what was taken in by way of tithes for the nation of Israel, that was the entire uh, inheritance, if you will, for the Levites. The Levites didn't have a portion of land given to them, and so the other eleven would give a tenth so that it would care for the Levites. And so the tithe was to care for the Levites. <coughs> Excuse me. And then the Levites would take that and give a tenth of that in order to care for the priests, which were part of the Levites. The priests had nothing other than what God would give them, just like the Levites. So the Levites, which included the priests in the line of Aaron, received their livelihood from the tenth or from the tithe that Israel brought into the temple. And from that tithe, then the Levites offered the tenth to the priests, which was to be the best part because that was the offering to the Lord. So you had the tithe and the offering. The tithe was what the people gave. The offering was what the Levites gave. The tithe was what the people brought to the Levites. The offering then was what the Levites would give to God, which would provide for the priests. There were other voluntary gifts given on special occasions, which were also called free offerings. But Israel was robbing God in both. Now, let's not be confused, okay? Because Christians are not governed by any biblical law that commands us to give a tenth of our earnings. There is nothing for Christians bound to the law in any kind of way that says you must give a tenth of your earnings to God. However, however, the principle of tithing came before the law was codified. So before the law of Moses was codified by God through Moses, Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek, which was prior to the law being codified. Does that mean then that we ought to be giving a tenth of what we earn? Well, Jesus said through the Apostle Paul that God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. So we are to be generous sacrificial in our giving. That may be a tenth. That may be 50%. That may be 90%. That may be 3%. That may be whatever the amount is. And knowing that God sees and knows the heart, 
As Christians, we have to give from the heart, no matter what the percentage is for us, whatever that is. Why? Because no one robs God without themselves being robbed as well. Notice verses 10 and 12 through 12. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Implication, if you don't do that, it's going bad for you because you're robbing God. But bring it into the storehouse and God provides what is needed for His worship. Bring it in so that there may be food in my house and test me in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Why? Why would God bless them for their giving? Because God is in the business of providing for his people. God was in the business of providing for those who did not have. The Levites did not have, the priests did not have, and the people needed to give in order that the worship in the house of God would be filled with all that God had desired for it to be filled with. Notice he says, so that there may be food in my house. Health, wealth, and prosperity preachers say, look, give to God, sow a seed to God, and he will fill your house. It will be for you. That's not what God said through Malachi. God said, look, test me on this. I'll open the windows of heaven and pour it out. Why? So that you can bring it to my house. I'll rebuke the devourer so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will the vine of the field cast off its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. This isn't some prosperity gospel that Malachi is preaching. This is biblical giving for the sake of God's people. There should never be a reason why God's church should ever be lacking in what God's church needs for the ministry for God's glory. You say, what is God saying? He's simply saying this, bring the whole offering. Bring the whole offering. Not simply what you give outwardly, but also inwardly. Your heart. Give yourself. God sees the entire person. I know what's going on. That's why God knew they were robbing him. It wasn't that God was counting the pennies coming into the offering. God knew what their heart was. That's why they weren't giving. Several years ago, of course, we had difficulty in this church, and many people left this church because of certain situations that they weren't happy with. And my secretary asked me, why, why has the giving not changed? In other words, why didn't the budget, why, why didn't the numbers go down when all those people left? And I said, because people began to vote with their wallet first. They don't like you, so they stop giving. They don't like something, so they don't give anymore. This is what was happening. They weren't giving they weren't doing what God had called them to do. They were, they were not only taking, not taking care of themselves, they weren't taking care of those whom God had placed in the ministry for them to take care of. God says, test me. Test me in this. See if I will not do what I promised, if you will change. You see, if Israel would just simply turn back to God, all the nations would call them blessed. 
In other words, the promise of God that God had made with Abraham would be finally fulfilled. Nations all over the world would say, thank God for those people. Thank God that they see God for who He is and that He blesses them and through them we receive the overflow. You say, what's the point of all this, Pastor? What's the point? The point is this, that we are preserved by a faithful and unchanging God revealed in our Lord Jesus Christ. That just simply means that our hope can never rest on our love or service to God. Our hope must rest on His unchangeableness. He is immutable. We trust in an unchanging God. What man must do is turn from his sin and repent, trusting in the unchangeable God. God is not indifferent to the evils of men. He will judge. The day is coming when He will suddenly come. So the implication for us is to live for God today in our lives and in our giving. Not as an academic exercise, not as some outward ritual, but from the heart because that is reality as we trust in the unchanging God. There's one more indictment left for them. Verse 13, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Arrogant. They're prideful. Prideful indicting God, saying that God's the one who needs to be blamed when they are the one to be charged. We'll get that next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for tonight. We thank You for the prophecy of Malachi. We thank You for the challenge it is to us to think about our own lives and think about in what ways even today when we think about justice, when we think about our own hearts, when we think about serving others, think about all these ways in which we live. Are we living in honor and glory to You? Or are we indicting your very character and nature and questioning your justice. You do not change. We are so grateful for that. Help us remember that in our, in our weakest moments and in our strongest moments, that you might receive the glory in it all, that others might know you, that we might see in us the reflection of your dear Son as you purify us. Thank you for these things. Thank you for each one here. Bless them in them. In Christ's name, amen.